Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Chatham Community Church. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad that y'all are here this morning. Uh, I'm especially glad to see some uh, unfamiliar faces. So if you're new, the first time or your first time with us in a long time, I want to extend a particularly warm welcome to you. I'm so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're here. I hope that if this is your first Sunday with us, uh, one of our wonderful ushers and, or people on our greeting team got to you with one of our welcome bags. If they didn't, make sure you get one of those on your way out. It's a great way to find out a little bit more about our church and, and, and get some of the wonderful gifts that we purchase from local businesses. It helps us support the community. So make sure you grab one of those on your way out if they haven't gotten one to you yet. Also, if you are new or if you've been new to our community now for a little bit and you're just sort of settling into our community, one of the things that we do here at Chatham Community Church is every once in a while we have a gathering, a short gathering after the service that we call Starting Point, and it's just what it sounds like. It is a starting point for what it might look like for you to call Chatham Community Church your home, and we're going to be doing that after the service next Sunday. So come back next Sunday after the service. We're going to gather uh, just for a little bit in the office that's just next to this room. Uh, it'll be me, a few other key leaders from our church, and other people like you who are, who are fresh to our community and are starting to consider whether they want to make Chatham Community Church their home. We'll share a little bit about what we believe, how we go about doing ministry here in Chatham County, and what it looks like to be part of our community. So feel free to join us. We'd love to have you. And no RSVP is needed. Just show up and we'll be there. Uh, also, um, uh, in light of what this weekend is and what we're remembering this weekend, I just want to say to all of you who served in the armed forces, thank you. Thank you. Grateful for your sacrifice. Grateful for your willingness to step up. We see you. We value you. We appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, in December of last year, there were a few days of significant weather-related travel disruptions. And most airlines across the U.S. were affected by this, and thousands of travelers experienced delays and more than likely cancellations, leaving them scrambling to find alternate ways to get home. People carpooled, people rented cars, people rented vans, people got on buses, people waited five days to get to the place where they were going. Many remained at airports for long hours trying to work with gate agents and other airline personnel to rebook themselves, and some of them remained stranded at their current locations. Now, as the weather sort of calmed down, most airlines recovered quickly, but one stood out for its inability to rebook its customers in any amount of reasonable time, and a sense that it had gotten caught flat-footed by winter weather which was weird given the reputation that this company had engendered over the course of a number of years and the fierce loyalty it had among travelers. This airline is Southwest. In the months following the debacle that was last December that left thousands of passengers stranded and upset, many articles were written trying to figure out what went wrong with Southwest. Why were they unable to respond like other airlines did? Some of the root causes that they identified included outdated IT systems, outdated systems for rebooking passengers, outdated systems for reassigning airline personnel, outdated systems for getting planes to where they needed to be, and a lack of cross-team communication. Those were issues that their on-the-ground staff had been raising up to management for years now, 
on the ground staff were seeing that this was coming and they were raising that issue for management, but they had been ignored or delayed by the higher-ups as the company continued to grow and become more and more profitable. The company, which in its earliest days had been a bit of a misfit and a standout among other airlines, due in part to its fiercely loyal employees, its fiercely loyal customer base, an excellent sense of teamwork, and great communication up, down, and across the organization, and a unique way of doing things, had begun to make decisions and implement strategies that were more in line with the airlines that it was now competing with. In doing that, they veered away from the things that made them soar in the first place, the things that actually got them to where they were. In summarizing what happened last December, business and management experts wrote that Southwest had lost its way in a few key areas. They had lost its way on business and technology strategies, labor relations, and employee collaborations, three areas where they had originally excelled and areas that their employees were telling them they were veering from. All that happened because as an organization, they stopped valuing the things that got them there and started doing the things that they saw the other airlines doing, started doing the things that they saw around them. It's easy to end up in a similar state, though none of us may be imitating the practices of airlines. But it's easy to get to a good spot, a spot where we feel somewhat settled, maybe some, a, a sense of success, and become so focused on staying there or on making it to the next level, on rising up even higher, to go on to do something bigger and better, that we start to adopt strategies and practices that we see those around us adopting and implementing, but that betray our values, that betray the things that got us there in the first place. When that happens, we erode our foundation. We erode the foundation that got us to where we were, and left unaddressed, our lives end up collapsing, even if along the way it might seem like we gain greater success. Because what happens is that we lose the people we were becoming. And when you connect that to God, we lose the sense of the people we were made to be. We've been in a series titled Age to Age, the big story of God's faithfulness here at Chatham Community Church. And what we've been doing is looking at the entire narrative arc of the Old Testament. And throughout this series, we want to do a couple of things. The first thing we want to do is help organize our Old Testament closet. Because we see all these books with all these weird names, and we read some of these books, and we see all these things that feel unfamiliar, and these places, and these, uh, these directions, and these, these rituals, and these ceremonies, and it's hard to figure out how things fit together. So part of what we're doing in this series is helping get a sense of how things fit together in the Old Testament. And part of what we've done for that is we've given you a bookmark. Some of you have it, have brought it back with you. It's in the uh, sort of every other seat. You can grab that if you don't have yours with you. The passage read for us by Matt comes at the end of the period of time in those charts that's known as the United Monarchy. It's right there in between settling the land and where you see Israel on top and Judah on the bottom. That's where this passage comes from. And it's at the end of a period of time where the people of God, Israel, were at their peak in terms of success, in terms of stability, in terms of peace. They were recognized as one kingdom under the rule of the line of David. 
what Matt read for us is the account of how one kingdom becomes two. How the kingdom splits with ten tribes going to what becomes the kingdom in the north and carries the name of Israel with itself. And then two tribes remain in the south and that becomes known as the kingdom of Judah. So now you know that when you read in your Bibles and you see in one chapter kingdom of Israel and the next chapter kingdom of Judah, it's that we're in the period of time where the kingdoms have split. There's no longer a united monarchy. The kingdom in the north is no longer following the rule of the line of David, and the kingdom in the south is following David's descendants. And these are some of the books that are covered during that time. So in the united monarchy, we talked about this last week, a good parts of Samuel, parts of the books of Kings, parts of the books of Chronicles, some Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And in the, the era that is introduced now, you get more of the books of the Kings, the rest of Second Chronicles, books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Hosea, on and on and on. Essentially, the era of the prophetic books, the era of the prophets is inaugurated during this time. The second thing we want to do in this series, aside from helping to organize not just when things happen, but what books are attached to what events are happening, is we want to reconsider the impression that we get of how God is portrayed in the Old Testament. Because many of us have developed the sense that the God in the Old Testament is somehow different from the God in the New Testament, or at the very least that different qualities are the qualities that are highlighted of the God in the Old Testament from the God in the New Testament. And we have this idea that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God a spiteful God, a vengeful God. But actually, what we're seeing throughout this narrative of the Old Testament is that the the God in the Old Testament is consistent with the God that we see in the New Testament. And the thing that, that, that stands out over and over again is that this is a God who is faithful to his people, who is faithful to his promises, who is faithful to his commitment to bless people and through them bless the entire world, bless all the nations. And that God remains faithful to that commitment and that promise even when the people he is showing his faithfulness to turn out to be unfaithful. This is a faithful God. Last week, we looked at what was arguably the high point for ancient Israel. Solomon leads the people in dedicating the temple of the Lord, and the presence of the Lord fills that place to a point where no one could do anything. It was a palpable moment where God is saying, yes, you all have partnered well with me. We are doing the thing we committed to do together. I am blessing you, and now you are becoming a blessing to the nations. Things are going great. Nations are being blessed. God was using this place and this people. But a short time later, still during Solomon's reign, things start to unravel. And the people start to turn away from the God who had been faithful to them. And it continues through this passage as two new rulers emerge, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. But it follows a pattern. And the pattern is this. They do the kinds of things kings in other kingdoms might have done if they were in their situation while at the same time neglecting the faithful God that got them there. What you see in Solomon, what you see in Rehoboam, what you see in Jeroboam is just that. The things that they do sound a lot like things that other kings might do or things that other kings might have done, while at the same time they neglect the faithful God that got them there, and things crumble. So I'm going to give you the big idea right off the bat. 
You don't have to wait till the end to know what the sermon is about. I'm going to tell you right from the start. When we displace faithfulness to the faithful God from the center of our lives, we erode the foundation that a good life is built on. When we displace faithfulness to the faithful God from being at the center, at the core of our lives, we erode the foundation that a good life is built on. And what happens when the foundation is eroded? Things collapse. The house crumbles. The passage we heard Matt read features the generation of leaders that comes just after Solomon. In his later years, Solomon has betrayed his faithfulness to God. He has distanced himself from what God asked him. In fact, he goes against specific directives that God gave him. And the things that God said would happen to him and to the people, if he did those things, start to happen. Solomon and the people start to go after other gods. They start to give their faithfulness to other gods, to worship other gods. So God tells him, God tells him that at this point, he is no longer able to bless the nations through him because he has betrayed his faithfulness to God. He and his people are no longer in a position where they can bless the nations because they are no longer remaining faithful to God. So he tells Solomon that he's going to take away 10 tribes from the kingdom that is united as 12 tribes. But he's not going to do it during his lifetime. He's going to do it afterwards. The hope, the hope is that he's going to take these 10 tribes and he's going to put someone over those 10 tribes. The hope is that that person will be able to lead those people in remaining faithful to God so that God's promises to his people, not just to bless them, but to through them bless the nations, can actually come to pass. Now you may say, why doesn't he just depose him? Why didn't he just put another king over the 12 tribes, another line? Well, because God is faithful to his promises. And God had promised David and the line of David that they would rule that there would be someone from David's line on the throne, and that through that, the nations would be blessed if they remained faithful to him. So God, even as he's saying, you are no longer partnering with me well, I want to continue to bless the nations, so I'm going to set up 10 tribes and another line to rule and see if they're faithful to me. He's saying, but to your line, I'm going to continue to give chances. I'm going to continue to be faithful to the promises I made for you, and hopefully in the next generation, or in the generation after that, one of your descendants will turn back to me, will be faithful to me, and we will continue to, through all the peoples, even if they're in two kingdoms now, bless the nations. Bless the nations. Bless the nations. Once Solomon dies, Rehoboam succeeds him as king. Rehoboam is his son. And in one of his first acts, he meets with the man named Jeroboam. Now, here's who Jeroboam was. Jeroboam had been an official during Solomon's reign. And as Solomon starts to turn away from God, Jeroboam gets a word from God. Jeroboam gets a word from God about the upcoming split. And Jeroboam is told that he will rule the other ten tribes. He will rule the parallel kingdom. And so what does Solomon do? You think, well, maybe... Solomon would decide, you know, God, I see this is real now. Let me repent. Let me turn back to you. But Solomon does what other kings would do if all of a sudden there were a challenge to the royal line. And he tells Jeroboam, I'm going to kill you. He threatens his life. So Jeroboam is in exile in Egypt. But when Solomon is no longer on the throne and Jeroboam rises, Jeroboam comes back. 
And at this point, the kingdom is still united. There are still 12 tribes. Jeroboam comes to the new king and asks for an easing of harsh conditions. He says, all right, your father, you know, in his latter years had treated us poorly. Would you, now as king, lighten the load? And he says, if you do that, we will be faithful to you. We will be loyal. We will follow you as king. Why is he doing that? If God has already told him that he's going to rule over a new kingdom, well, maybe he has hope. Maybe he has hope that there's still a chance to preserve unity because the kingdom is not yet split. They are still one people. Maybe he's setting Rehoboam up. Maybe. We don't know for sure. But let's assume that at the very least, he wants to see what kind of king Rehoboam is going to be. If he's going to be like his father or if he's going to turn a new page in how to rule the kingdom. So what does Rehoboam do? Rehoboam asks for some time to think. He asks for some time to think about it, and that is a great move. We can celebrate that. It is good that he takes time to consider it. Then in his time of thinking, he goes and gets advice. Another solid move. Goes and seeks counsel. Good things to do. And you hope, as he goes to seek advice, that maybe, just maybe, things are going to turn for good. That maybe there's a chance to preserve the kingdom. He gets advice from two groups. And you start to see that his good moves fizzle out. His father's advisors tell him, lighten the load. Lighten the load. Show mercy to these people, and you will get a lifetime of loyalty from them. A lifetime of loyalty from them. No, these are the folks that advised the king who was considered the wisest king to ever rule. So these are the people that the wisest king to ever rule looked to for wisdom. These are the people Rehoboam is talking to. So what does Rehoboam do? He doesn't follow their advice. These are the people who helped lead the kingdom into a, an unimaginable time of peace and prosperity. And they give this new king advice, and this new king rejects the advice. His peers tell him to double down. And let me tell you, that is not far-fetched advice. That is not far-fetched advice. Conventional wisdom would say, Here's a new king. If he shows himself as weak or as easily manipulated by potential rivals, he'll be taken advantage of. The people won't respect him, and other kingdoms will see that, that we are weak and will come and conquer us. Rather than lightening the load, he doesn't even say we're going to keep it as it is. He says, I'm going to double down. I'm going to increase the burden. He flexes his royal muscle and shows himself as someone not to to be trifled with, and the kingdom breaks apart. Friends, who we listen to matters. What voices we let influence the course of our lives and the decisions that we make matters. Every family birthday party that I can remember growing up had some measure of pain to it. Not that there was family trauma, though there was, but... It, the, the moment of pain always happened when the birthday cake came out. See, my family can't sing on key to save their lives. <laughs> but for many years, that didn't stop us from belting out happy birthday multiple times each year. As I got older, it became sort of an inside joke within the family. We became self-aware that this was happening, partly because we had friends who would come to birthday parties and we would see them cringe. So, so to the point where we started to laugh so much we couldn't get through the song, and eventually we settled on whispering the song. 
So if you're ever with me in Puerto Rico and my family is celebrating your birthday, you will hear us whisper happy birthday. That will be how we get through the song. So I grew up never singing on key and thinking that I couldn't. In fact, I was told that I couldn't. Years later, I was at a worship service, and at the end, the person in front of me turned around and said, you have a nice voice. I'd never heard that before in my life. In fact, I'd heard the opposite. I'd had people tell me in other settings outside of my family, please stop singing. Please stop singing. So what had changed? What had changed was that now I had spent a few years around people that could sing on key in settings where they were singing on key, and I was listening to them. And I now found myself able to sing on key as well. Who we listen to matters. It makes a difference in how we carry out our lives because the voices we listen to shape what we do and they shape who we become. There are voices that tell us how to work. There are voices that tell us how to parent. There are voices that tell us how to set up our kids for successful lives. There are voices that tell us how to get into a relationship and make it successful. There are voices that tell us what it means to be a Christian. There are voices that tell us how to vote. There are voices that tell us how to be a good neighbor. There are voices that tell us how to run a business. There are voices that tell us how to approach education and so on and so forth. When was the last time that you considered whether the voices you were listening to and shaping where you were going, what you were doing, and who you were becoming were bearing good fruit. When was the last time that you considered whether the voices that are shaping you were bearing good fruit? When did you last reflect on whether the voices shaping you were either reinforcing faithfulness to God or undermining faithfulness to God? Friends, there's no avoiding there's no avoiding fate, voices and messages shaping us. Overall, the idea that voices and messages shape us is good. We were meant to be an interdependent communal people. We were meant to have voices speaking into our lives. And this isn't even a slight on conventional wisdom, even though conventional wisdom is what these kings might have been following. There is good conventional wisdom out there. What I'm inviting us to consider is that because the life we were created for hinges on God's faithfulness to us and our faithful response to him, who and what we listen to matters in a particular way. So this week, as you consider those voices that are shaping you, as you consider who you listen to, listen and attend to the voices that strengthen your faithfulness to God rather than the ones that undermine it so that you are able to build a good life on a firm foundation. Listen to the voices that, that center, that strengthen your faithfulness to God. If a voice or a message, if a direction is taking you away from faithfulness to God, or is replacing faithfulness to God, or is competing with faithfulness to God, even if it seems like what everyone is doing, even if it seems like the ends are good, don't be deceived. You may gain some short-term success and benefit, but the foundation of a good life will become eroded and eventually life will crumble. Life will crumble because a good life is unsustainable without connection to the one that made us to live it. And our faithfulness to the one who is faithful to us is what helps, us, helps guide us in the moments when we need to decide. On the other side of this new generation of leaders is Jeroboam. Before we encounter him, he had been an official. He had been exiled because Solomon had threatened his life. 
And this is what God tells him when God promises him a kingdom. He tells him, If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. So when God tells Jeroboam that he's going to be that he's going to be king over a kingdom. He doesn't make him a junior promise. He doesn't tell him, well, you're just going to be there until David's house gets its act together. He's saying David's line has forfeited the promise for now. So I am still faithful to him. But I'm still committed to my mission to bless the nations. So if you will be faithful to me, then I will do through your line the same thing I have promised to do through the line of David. I will bless you, and through you, I will bless the nations. He makes them a similar promise to the one he made David. He does this because there seems to be little eagerness to partner with him in David's line. All Jeroboam has to do for things to go well is to remain faithful to God. That's all he's got to do. So Jeroboam returns to the kingdom after being in exile. Jeroboam finds Rehoboam king. He finds himself in front of a king who now threatens him. He flees. A new kingdom is set up, and they call him to be king. So now Jeroboam is king. So what does he do? He establishes a capital. He establishes a capital. He fortifies some cities. Good, key, strategic, kingly moves. And he finds himself up against a smaller kingdom, the southern kingdom. But what the southern kingdom has that the northern kingdom doesn't have Right? The southern kingdom doesn't have ten tribes. It only has two. Advantage northern kingdom. But what the southern kingdom has that the northern kingdom doesn't have is Jerusalem. And what is in Jerusalem? The temple of the Lord. And who is in the temple of the Lord? The presence of God. So Jeroboam has this huge kingdom, but doesn't have the place where God has said his name would dwell. People from all over the United Kingdom, would head to Jerusalem multiple times a year to celebrate and worship the Lord. They would head there to remember the story of God's faithful deliverance of them. It was a way in which as a community together, they would retell the story. They would remember how God had been faithful to them. They would reinforce their own commitment to be faithful to God. They would head to this place. There were times of strengthening kingdom bonds as sisters and brothers from all across the 12 tribes gathered together and remembered what it looked like to be the people God had called them to be. And Jeroboam starts to wonder, well, what's it going to be like now? Because we're not a united people anymore. The temple isn't in our kingdom. And he starts to fear the worst. He starts to fear that if he lets his people, the people in the kingdom he rules now, go to Jerusalem, to the neighboring kingdom for pilgrimages, the people will start to clamor for a reunification of the kingdom. And they'll start to want to have the line of David as their kings. And they will kill him in order to facilitate the transition. If he lets the people go back to Jerusalem, he will lose his kingdom. Now, listen to me. These are not unreasonable fears. From a strategic perspective, this makes sense. What happens is he lets reasonable fears drive the bus on his decisions. That's the mistake he makes. 
And so what does he do? He sets up alternate religious practices and structures. He sets up different places for people to go to worship. He sets up a parallel priestly line, not from the tribe of the Levites. He sets up other key times in which they can worship. He basically tries to replace the covenant and the commitment they had made to a faithful God with a covenant and a commitment that would center his line and his rule and would keep the people faithful to him. He offers sacrifices himself, modeling what this new religious life will be like. From a tactical perspective, this is smart because it, because if it, insure, because it ensures a particular goal. It ensures that by his hand, he's going to be able to preserve his kingdom. By his hand, he's going to be able to engender loyalty. By his hand, he's going to be able to keep the thing that has been given to him. But that's not what he was charged with. God didn't tell him, do what you need to do to preserve the kingdom. He said, be faithful to me, and I will preserve your kingdom. Be faithful to me, and I will preserve the kingdom. He had been charged with being faithful to the God who'd given him his kingdom. But fear, not faithfulness, is driving the bus. And even as he's setting up religious structures, even as he's setting up practices for them to worship, he's actually keeping the people away from the presence of God. He's keeping the people away from the very God. He's trying to find ways to lead them to encounter. He is setting up for generations to come a drifting away from the God who had been faithful to them and a drifting away from an understanding of what it meant to be faithful to that God who had delivered and established them. Friends, when fear is in the driver's seat, our ability to make reasoned decisions that are faithful to God disappears. When fear is driving the bus, our ability to make reasoned decisions that are faithful to God disappears. The fear he feels he is, uh, the, the fear he feels is reasonable. All the things that he was concerned about are possible. It is completely viable to consider that if he lets the people go to Jerusalem, he will lose the kingdom. Completely viable. In fact, from a military strategic point, it would be dumb to let them go to Jerusalem. He needed to address those fears. The problem is that in responding to the fear, he fails to remember the promise. In responding to the fear, he fails to remember the promises of God. Friends, all of us have reasonable, understandable fears. Sometimes they alert us that something is wrong and something needs to change and we need to react and respond, that something needs our attention. But when we let fear drive the bus in our lives and our decisions, it eventually takes up the space that invites us to consider what it would look like if God were to continue to be faithful. It eventually takes up that room, the room that we have in our lives to consider what it looks like for God to be faithful and for us to remain faithfulness to him. And when faithfulness to God isn't at the center, the foundations for a good life erode. And when the foundations for a good life erode, even if we do well for a while, eventually lives crumble. When fear threatens to hijack you, when fear is knocking at the door of driving the bus of your life and your decisions, let the promises God has made to you keep you grounded in faithfulness to God. It's not that we don't respond to those fears. It's that we don't let the fear dictate our response. 
We let the promises of God dictate our response and address those fears. Jeroboam could have done that. He could have remembered what God had promised and sought to respond in a way that drew him and his people closer to God's presence, believing that God would keep his word even if they kept going to Jerusalem. But he chose differently. And it doomed his kingdom. It doomed his line. Here's what's notably absent in the stories of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. At no point do either of them actually seek God. At no point is there any prayer. At no point is there any going to the one who had promised and shown himself faithful and said, here are the circumstances, God. I am not sure how you are being faithful right now, and I am not sure how to be faithful to you. Would you show us? But neither of them does that. Neither of them does that. Neither of them pray. Neither of them go to the temple. Neither of them consult the prophets. Neither seek the guidance of the faithful one who would show them how to be faithful. Even though the faithful God had, the, had been the one who had brought them to those places, the faithful God had delivered the people of God from slavery in Egypt. The faithful God had brought them into the land. The faithful God had blessed the line of David. The faithful God was responsible for Rehoboam being on the throne. The faithful God had told Jeroboam, you will have a kingdom. And it will prosper if you are faithful to me. And he had told them how to be faithful to him. A faithful response to God, a faithful following after God, a faithful seeking after God is now notably absent. I told you early in the sermon what the big idea was, that when we displace faithfulness to God from the center of our lives, we erode the foundations that a good life is built on. So here's how we keep faithfulness to God at the center of our lives. Seek God and follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That's it. There's not a second slide. You may say, well, that seems too simple. Why does it have to be complicated? It's one of the things I love about the God that we meet in the scriptures. I'm not saying that the particulars aren't challenging. I'm not saying that at times we don't have to struggle, but at its core, it is simple. It is simple. Seek God and follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Seek God because God has said that those who seek me will find me. So if we're seeking how to be faithful to the faithful God, God will show us because he has promised to do so. And the best way he has shown us how to be faithful to him is in his ultimate demonstration of faithfulness to us, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus' sacrifice, in Jesus' life, he charted the path for us to live a faithful life to God, a life in which we could remain faithful and we could come back to faithfulness even when we veered because through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has bought forgiveness for all of us. We don't have to earn our way back into God's favor. We just have to follow back in the footsteps of Jesus, the one who showed us how to live. Follow the path. Follow the path. I'm going to end with the blessing that Solomon prayed for the people. It's a summary of even these statements. Here's what I want for all of us as we consider what it might look like to keep God at the center, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to be faithful to the God who is faithful to us. Let me pray this over you. Would you pray with me? May your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God, 
to live by his decrees and obey his commands. May you be faithful to the God who has been faithful to you. It is not more complicated than that. God has no intention to make himself tricky or wily or hard to figure out how to follow. God has made the path clear for all of us, even if all we can see is the next step in front of us. Seek God. Follow Jesus. And you will always find yourself with faithfulness to God at the center of, our, of your life, building a life that lasts, that endures, that prospers, that is blessed, and that blesses those around you. Folks, if you have veered from that today, don't do what Rehoboam and Jeroboam did. Seek God. Come back to him. God is always ready to receive, ready to forgive, ready to restore, ready to show himself as the faithful one. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship?